Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. Today we'll be exploring how COVID has impacted home buyers around the world following the release of our 2020 Global Buyer Survey. Our Head of International Research, Kate Everett-Allen, gives an excellent overview of the key findings of the survey, and this is what surprised her the most. For me, I think the key thing really is in relation to lifestyle and how people are going to live their lives differently. We knew that we were likely to get responses along the lines of buyers wanting more outdoor space, people prioritising home offices. What I didn't expect was when looking at second homes, just how important the government's response to the crisis is in the minds of second home potential buyers. Our guest speaker is Jonathan Miller, president and CEO of Miller Samuel, a real estate appraisal firm based in New York and Connecticut. Since 1994, Jonathan has produced market reports for Douglas Elliman, Knight Frank's residential partners in the US, and he's a regular commentator on prime housing markets across the US. Here he explains why US suburbs are having a moment. You know, the suburban or second home markets are going to have their day essentially for the next three, four or five years at many urban markets expense. It makes a lot of sense anyway, simply because after the financial crisis, the suburban markets are largely skipped over and they didn't really have a boom like the city did. And so now we have this reversion to suburbs from the cities and the new urbanism movement. I also caught up with Head of International Residential Sales, Mei Han Wang in Hong Kong, and she explains what is driving Hong Kong buyers to acquire homes overseas. I mean, the main kind of top considerations or reasons we've seen buyers kind of in Hong Kong purchasing, really handful of reasons, the present kind of low exchange rate and interest rates, their diversity in their existing portfolio, preserving family wealth, having second homes kind of either for their kids' education or maybe for themselves at some point in time. Finally, our global head of research, Liam Bailey, tackles the biggest questions affecting residential property markets at the moment and outlines why the debate in London is different. You know, in the UK, at least, it's, it's quite a, a London-centric discussion because if you work somewhere like Manchester or Birmingham or, or Edinburgh, it's a completely different debate. You know, for most relatively affluent families, the concept of you know, wanting access to a garden or, or to a spare bedroom is you know, relatively achievable just about everywhere in the UK apart from London. Kate, can you tell us a bit about the Global Buyer Survey and some of the key findings and and the main trends that you're seeing emerge as a result of the pandemic? Hi, Anna, and thanks. The Knight Frank Global Buyer Survey was released earlier this week, and it analyses the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on buyers' attitudes around the world. The survey represents the views of over 700 of Knight Frank's clients based across 44 countries, and it was conducted in the first two weeks of June. Just to give you a flavour of some of the key findings, a quarter of respondents said that they were more likely to move over the next 12 months as a result of the pandemic. Improved access to quality healthcare was now the second most important motive behind a property purchase. Top was upgrading the family's residence. Buyers are expecting property prices to decline over the next 12 months. And although 53% of respondents say that their budget has either remained the same or increased since the start of the crisis, there is over 30% that believe their budget or spending power has declined by 10% or more over that period. 
Over a quarter of respondents say they're more likely to buy a second home as a result of the pandemic. And we also asked respondents about their travel plans, given that for second home buyers, travelling abroad is obviously the restrictions, etc., a critical factor. But also for second home owners too, given that many are hoping to try and recoup some rental income from this current summer season. And the results suggest there's a degree of confidence emerging, with over half of respondents saying that they have either travelled abroad already or would be willing to do so within three months of borders reopening. So, Kate, there's obviously so many findings from the survey and it's such an unprecedented time. But what would you say, I mean, of the, of the findings that you've gone through, what would you say are the most significant ones for our listeners? So I think there's a whole wealth of information within the report. We split it into four different sections. So we look at, at things like future buying intentions, lifestyles, second homes and also prices. For me, I think the key thing really is in relation to lifestyle and how people are going to live their lives differently. We knew that we were likely to get responses along the lines of buyers wanting more outdoor space, people prioritising home offices. What I didn't expect was when looking at second homes, just how important the government's response to the crisis is in the minds of second home potential buyers. So, for example, I think we saw something like two thirds of respondents said that they would take that into consideration when looking for a second home, which is significantly higher than I'd I'd envisaged. So, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast today. We're keen to hear, really, your perspective from the US. I mean, in several European countries, you couldn't, as a rule, move to a second home during the pandemic. And in in the US, you could. So has this been a key reason why the US has seen a strong uptick in second home purchases in places like the Hamptons, Florida, California, and Aspen? Well, I think it's a combination of things. The initial reason, there was a narrative that developed, which we would describe as urban to suburban, where there was a safety issue equated with cities, and there was an outbound migration to the suburban markets, which eventually morphed into second home markets, which was somewhat unexpected, but the second home market phenomenon is something that I've started to call co-primary. In other words, you have a primary residence and then you have sort of a an heightened view of what a second home is. It's actually an alternative primary home, which is something that we're seeing in the, the luxury market or you know the upper half of the housing market. And what's your kind of current situation now? I believe you're not exactly living in the, in the center of town. I mean, do you think that people like yourself and others are, are likely to be keener to remain in the sort of suburbs and, and stay out of high-density cities? Or do you think that high-density cities will retain their appeal? I think that high-density cities will absolutely regain their appeal. One of the uh, misunderstandings about the word density in the context of the pandemic has been New York City was the first in the U.S. that really had a significant infection rate from COVID-19. And the assumption throughout the country was, well, New York is high density, therefore it's less safe. And, you know, I live in a suburb or I live on a ranch in rural America and we're, we're fine. That turned out to be not the case. At the height of the pandemic, the Manhattan, which is one of five boroughs that has by far the highest density rate of people living in the city, had the lowest infection rate. And areas in the city that had the 
lowest density like Staten Island and the outer reaches of Brooklyn and Queens, all outer boroughs of New York City, had the highest infection rate. So I really think that the initial response to this and the legacy of cities will not be, you see, a long-term impact because its density is a factor, but it's not the reason. It's really about mobility and wealth. And so that's why we're seeing a tremendous uptick in luxury activity and especially um, more activity in luxury, traditional sort of second home markets. Do you think as a housing analyst, there's sort of any point really referring back to the global financial crisis with COVID? Well, you know, one of the uh, comparisons in the financial crisis with today is essentially the economy collapsed because of the way that the economy was almost taken for granted and, you know, that there was gravity. Uh, Here we have an external force, sort of like a 9-11, where an external force that impacts an economy and there's significant damage. I think the correlation is more close to our 9-11 event locally in New York than it is to the financial crisis, primarily because the financial crisis was about mortgages and financing as it related to housing. And that doesn't seem to be the case in this environment. The banking system actually right now is in pretty good shape. And that was not the case after what we call the Lehman moment in New York, but the financial crisis. You know, I really think that so much of what happens in the future is how quickly we can eradicate or solve the problem with a vaccine. And it's not going to go away until we we resolve that. And we're really dependent on that happening. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen in the very immediate future. And what would you say would be the kind of key trends that will outlast the pandemic potentially? I mean, it's obviously difficult to gaze into a crystal ball with these things, but what would you say will be the defining trends that you think won't just be a short-term thing? You think they're really here to stay? Well, I think initially there is, we're going to see this expansion of second home markets as what I call co-primary markets. I think that that is already happening. And I think that that was essentially primed by the virus, but will still remain in place after the crisis is over because of the technology. You know, I think it's going to have a lot of implications. You know, the suburban or second home markets are going to have their day essentially for the next three, four or five years at many urban markets expense. It makes a lot of sense anyway, simply because after the financial crisis, the suburban markets are largely skipped over and they didn't really have a boom like the city did. And so now we have this reversion to suburbs from the cities and the new urbanism movement. I say with caution that those that think that cities are over, I think are sadly mistaken, but I do think that we are going to see some robust conditions in suburban markets going forward across the U.S. I don't think what's happening now is going to change in the near term. I think we're going to continue to see people seeking out more space and amenities that enable them to look at these properties as sort of a personal safe haven. So who do you reckon will be left in New York City then? You you think it will be mainly kind of key workers and young people who want to enjoy the social life? Well, I think in terms of who will be left, I think a large number of the people that are leaving initially were more affluent 
they had more flexibility in terms of not even just living in the suburbs of second home markets, but in other parts of the country. Markets like Aspen, Florida itself, low-tax states were already benefiting from their competitive advantage over some of the large cities in the U.S., and I think that continues. So who's left, I think, is a younger, as pricing in at least the rental market becomes a little bit more affordable and some of the pricing does adjust for the less demand or activity that the cities are seeing, it's going to bring in a whole new generation of people that are going to influence the reinvention of retail and the way office space is handled. I think you're going to see some retail and office space convert to residential. It's important to think about these things in the context of COVID being controlled or you know that we're past this crisis. It's hard to imagine that right now. So May, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Are you seeing investors in Asia starting to look at overseas opportunities again? And if so, where are they looking at the moment and what is driving their interest currently? So Hong Kong investors purchasing overseas isn't new to them. A large number of kind of wealthy Hong Kong residents have already invested globally, but still continuing. So to diversify their portfolios to some preserving their family wealth, we've seen a significant surge in inquiries and sales in the past few months since lockdown restrictions from first time buyers to owner occupiers and investors. While we usually assist our buyers who are mainly looking at investment properties, we're now getting less inquiries about buy to let but receiving more inquiries for own use and talking about their possible immigration plans. So some buyers initially have the intentions to look at properties, as I say, to invest, but they're also potentially looking to move over as well. So time-wise, within the next 12 months, or in some cases, no set date planned. The top places we've seen inquiries have been the UK, Australia in particular, Sydney and Melbourne. The US, New York has been very popular, Portugal, so Lisbon and Porto, New Zealand, in particular Auckland, Vancouver and Toronto in Canada, and Ireland. So with that said, we've seen a lot more inquiries for UK at present compared to other countries with the new special visa for Hong Kong BNO holders, uh, the stamp duty holiday, together with the relatively low exchange and interest rates. Cities like London, Manchester, Birmingham and areas with good universities like Cambridge, Oxford and Reading has been quite popular. And just looking, I mean, obviously, Maeve, you've been in the business a long time. How would you say the new generation of Hong Kongers, how have their interests evolved? I mean, do you think that buying overseas will be very common for this generation? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what we find is Hong Kong buyers do like to plan ahead. I mean, the main kind of top considerations or reasons we've seen buyers kind of in Hong Kong purchasing, really handful of reasons, the present low exchange rate and interest rates, their diversity in their existing portfolio, preserving family wealth, having second homes kind of either for their kids' education or maybe for themselves at some point in time. And as previous mentioned, kind of immigration reasons is, is really quite top of the list at the moment. And ultimately, Hong Kong buyers do see overseas properties are relatively priced lower than property prices in Hong Kong. We look at the global buyer survey at the rise in demand from expats and 
and this is one of the topics that we've also covered in previous podcasts. So it'd be great to know if you think this is temporary or a lasting trend, because a lot has been talked about Europeans and Australians in Asia looking for a base back home. But would you say that's the same or true of Asian expats working abroad? Are they now looking for a foothold back home or, or even a larger property in their home country or territory? We've certainly started to see a strong buying sentiment um, from expats, especially back home to Australia, New Zealand, and in particular in the UK. Uh, We believe that during the time in the lockdown has made many expats consider what is the few important things that they need to consider. The importance of family for many and the type of lifestyle they want to lead have been kind of the top priorities in their recent decision making. So a recent survey polled that more than half of expats intend to buy property in their hometown as a second home or just in case they need to return home permanently. Actually, with many inquiries kind of looking at detached homes with private outdoor space, being close to family members has been kind of one of the main reasons behind the search. 29% surveyed was considering to permanently move back with 14% purchasing an additional property. Other reasons have been receiving new job offers, better healthcare system back home, plus children's education needs are also considered. I think the currency had also played a very important factor too. So majority that was surveyed preferred uh, suburban areas rather than rural, and that could be because they're looking for more balanced or where they could still have the the lifestyle option and maybe close to kind of restaurants and bars and, and cultural amenities. Thank you very much, May. So let's bring Liam to look at this from a UK perspective. Liam, what can you tell us about buyer sentiment currently in the UK? I think the report is is really timely. You know, obviously, we're still in the pandemic. And I think what Kate has done with her research is actually taken the pulse of the respondents about a time to reflect on what the pandemic means for their lifestyle and, and how they want to live. And I think there's a huge amount in the report, which I think developers and investors will want to think about. But I think there's a bigger issue, which it sort of comes down to your perspective on the debate. And it kind of depends on where you come from as to how you might view this issue. So One of the key issues in the report is, are buyers going to want something different in the future because of the pandemic? And I think, you know, Kate's central response is, or the research says, people want more space. You know, it's pretty obvious, you know, more space to work at home, more space to accommodate children who have been homeschooled, and maybe more outdoor space just in case there's going to be another lockdown. But, you know, all of this comes at a cost. And I think people are therefore looking to move, potentially move further away from city centres and and think about suburbs or the country or more rural locations, as as May was saying. But I think actually, you know, in the UK, at least, it's it's quite a a London-centric discussion, because if you work somewhere like Manchester or Birmingham or, or Edinburgh, it's a completely different debate. You know, for most relatively affluent families, the concept of you know wanting access to a garden or, or to a spare bedroom is relatively achievable just about everywhere in the UK apart from London. Okay, you might throw in Oxford or Cambridge as well, but you know most locations it's not an unrealistic aspiration to have that kind of space. And actually, that search for space in regional cities means you might end up with a commute of say 30 minutes to get you into your in, into your office, but. In London, if you want those facilities, if you want a garden and you want a spare room and uh, a bit more space in your house, you know, you might end up commuting an hour and a half away from your desk. So I think in the UK, this this sort of focus on, you know, will the pandemic have a dramatic change in the way people want to live? I think it's kind of a debate driven by London. And even actually, if we take a step back and think about the 
issues that Jonathan Miller was talking about in New York. I think actually it's a debate that's driven by the inhabitants of a few influential cities. It's, you know, it's a London issue, it's a New York issue, but it's not probably the same issue in LA, you know, where the entire city is a suburb and actually pretty much everyone's got some form of space. And actually, as May was saying, it doesn't seem to be the same issue or the same response in Asia. I mean, somewhere like Hong Kong, for example, you know, the city physically is unable to allow lots of people to commute from the distant suburbs because, you know, apart from a few enclaves or expensive enclaves, they just don't exist in the same way. So, Liam, what else did you find particularly striking about the Global Buyer Report? I think the, the report kind of points to two things that I think are really interesting. One is the fact that in the near term, I think it's fair to say that the wealthy in particular, will be more likely, as they, they are already doing, looking to choose more space and maybe you know, more seclusion because of the, uh, the pandemic. But in the long term, that response, I don't see how you democratise that response. I don't see how that percolates down to a, a much wider group of people. Because if I think about the UK, you know, the southeast of England just cannot accommodate everyone wanting to leave their flats in London. It's just not going to happen. I think, therefore, there's a bigger question and there's a bigger sort of opportunity almost, which is if people want to live differently in the light of the pandemic and the wealthy may be able to exercise that choice because they have the money to spend and they can think about living slightly differently and, and, and buying different accommodation, how do we sort of make that response work for you know everybody? How, how do we sort of live differently in the longer term? And I think Thinking what's happened because of the pandemic to the high street, to shopping centres, to urban centres, I think there is going to be an opportunity or there's going to have to be an opportunity to look at a wider planning and development response to actually how people want to live their lives. Looking ahead, how do you think property development will change as a result of the pandemic? Well, just thinking how this might play out over time, I think there's no doubt that in many areas, you know, retail centres have, have obviously weakened significantly due to the pandemic. So there's, there's suddenly a potential availability of property in those locations. There's a question mark over how much office space will be needed post-pandemic. I mean, there will be a return to work, there will be a return to the office. It just may not be in the same volume that we've been used to in the, in the recent past. And therefore, you've got to think, well, actually, there are opportunities in, in CBDs around the world to think, how do you use that space? So if people are looking for you know, more flexible options, they want more private space, they want uh, to live slightly differently at home, developers may need to respond to that. But it may be that actually you see more push towards you know, true mixed use development in urban centres. And actually the long term development of city centres and urban centres follows maybe more of a kind of European route. So thinking about some of the blocks in places like Barcelona, where you've got a, a much more mix of workplace, retail, plus residential, there may be something there that we could be thinking about, actually, as to how does the development industry actually respond in the longer term to the impact of the pandemic. I think it's, it's very early days, but I, I can see how all of these trends, the, the way that people want to live differently, the, the fact that actually shopping and work is changing, all of them will come together and there will have to be a planning and a development response. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Thank you.